reading comes from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Despite so much, Paul speaks of his joy. Starting at verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I don't say this to to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. Let's pray. Paul speaks of the Corinthians response of fear and trembling. And Father, we recognize that that is the right and proper response to your word. Fear and trembling and joy and glad obedience and much else too. But we pray you'd help us, each of us now, to listen 
rightly to your word. We pray for help to listen. Please open our ears, open our eyes to understand. And please press your word home to our hearts. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, how do you respond to a rebuke? Maybe it never happens to you. Uh, those of us who are married, perhaps more familiar with it. I don't know. Um, I wonder. I think often our, our instinct is to um, sort of uh, defend ourselves, to shift the blame, justify ourselves. Sometimes, perhaps, we're prone to feel a bit resentful and bitter towards the person who's rebuked us. Hasn't that policeman got better things to do? I sometimes have, have thought to myself, not that I've often been ticked <laughs> off by a policeman. Some of us, a rebuke touches us, our, our insecurity, quite deeply, and a rebuke floors us. It, it, we, we crumple inside at a rebuke. Let me flip the question. How, how do you feel when you have to give a rebuke to someone else? Maybe for a few of us, well, we're, we're almost too quick, too ready to point out other people's flaws and mistakes. I suspect for most of us, though, we're prone to be rather conflict-averse. We shrink from having to confront someone about something they have done wrong. We'd just rather not go there. How we feel about giving or receiving rebuke, in sense, reveals quite a lot about us. And this chapter reveals quite a lot about Paul and the Corinthians, because that is the backdrop to this passage. Paul had had to rebuke this church at Corinth. He'd written them, we learned earlier in the letter, a harsh letter which he'd found very difficult to write. He'd been worried about how they would respond to his rebuke, which he'd had to send with Titus. So it wasn't as simple as popping a letter in a postbox. It had to go by hand a long distance. We've probably had the experience of maybe clicking send on an email, and we've sort of thought, should I have sent that? How will they receive it? Or maybe we've very carefully written a letter to say some hard things to someone. And it's, we've, we've certainly thought and prayed about the wording, but still, having put the letter in the post, there is that anxious wait. How will they respond to what I've written? And with a letter, maybe it will take a few days before you know. For Paul, it was a much longer wait for him to hear the impact of that harsh letter to wait for Titus to return. And he found that, that wait difficult. So if you look back at the passage, verse 5, that's why he writes, for when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every term. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. He's told us plenty in this letter already about the kinds of conflicts on the outside that he faced just across the page. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. He speaks how we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. And he begins the letter reminding them of a recent hard trial 
which he says he was in, under such pressure it felt more than he could endure. So he, he despaired even of life itself. Lots of conflicts on the outside. But I think the reason for having no rest was especially his fears within. And I suspect especially those fears were fears for this church at Corinth. He was worried for them. How would they respond to his letter? So he goes on, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Isn't that lovely? God is the God who comforts the downcast. Some of us need to remember that. And sometimes his comfort comes to us directly as we draw near to God and pray, as we read his word wonderfully. God comforts us and we have a sense of that. But very often, God's comfort comes through other believers. It's the way God loves to work. He loves to use you or me to bring his comfort to others. No doubt there are lots of people here who need God's comfort at the moment. And it's lovely that God would love to use us to be channels of comfort to them. He can use your kind words, your listening ear, your phone call during the week, your offer of help, your offer to pray for them and with them. God's comfort so often comes through his people, as it did here. God used Titus to comfort Paul. And it wasn't simply Titus's presence, having his colleague back with him. No, no, that was part of it. But more than that, it was the news that Titus brought with him. Again, look at, look at verse 6. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us, about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Joy, joy actually is what pervades the chapter. He speaks in end of verse 4, how in all our troubles my joy knows no bounds, he says. Verse 9, he says, I'm, now I'm happy, he says. Verse 13, he speaks of how encouraged he is, delighted indeed. So as we look at this chapter, what I really, really want us to think about is, is why? Why is Paul so full of joy? What has encouraged Paul? What has he seen in the Corinthian church that has filled him with this joy? Because I take it, it would be good if those same things marked us at St. Ebbs. Okay, those things too. If Paul were to look at St. Ebbs, what would make his joy greater than ever? Or if you look at verse 16, if you looked at us, what would mean Paul could say of us, I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you? What would, what would Paul want to see in us? Paul is Christ's apostle. So it's really the same as asking, what would Christ love to see in us his church what would delight his heart if the lord jesus were to look at st ebbs now and this chapter 
gives them an answer to that question. It's a rather surprising answer in all kinds of ways. But see what Paul says has, has encouraged him. Verse 7, it's, it's Titus's news. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. What thrilled Paul, he says, is hearing about their deep sorrow and ardent concern. That's a bit of an odd thing. Just so happy that you're sad. Just so happy to hear how concerned you are for me. It sounds slightly wrong. But really those two things are what he unpacks in this chapter. They're not the most obvious things you might have thought of. But these are two things that Paul was delighted to see in Corinth. And I take it Christ would be delighted to see in us. Deep sorrow, ardent concern. Or to, I just sort of, I'm going to rephrase it for our two headings, sort of reflecting the chapter as a whole. As godly sorrow and heartfelt devotion. Those are two things Paul says he'd love to see in us. So first, godly sorrow. As I say, it seems odd that for Paul, he should be so thrilled at their deep sorrow. But it's not so much the depth of it, it's the quality of it. Because he makes it clear there is a good kind of sorrow, and there's a bad kind of sorrow. Look at verse, verse 8 and following. Verse 8, he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now... I'm happy, not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Two kinds of sorrow he talks about, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. One is good, what God intends. One, he says, is deadly. So we need to understand the difference. What does it mean to be sorrowful as God intends, in a, in a healthy way? Well, Paul unpacks it for us. First, he says, godly sorrow is, is God-centered, not me-centered. That phrase, actually, godly sorrow, literally, it's sorrow according to God or, or sorrow towards God. Worldly sorrow is focused in on ourselves. It's, it's self-pity. It's that sense of sorrow we feel when we know we've done something wrong and we're, we're angry with ourselves or we, we feel we've let ourselves down or we're ashamed and embarrassed by what we've done. We feel bad because we don't like the consequences of our sin, how other people might now think about us, its impact on us. That's worldly sorrow. Think of Pharaoh. Remember the story of the Exodus, how God sent various plagues, judgment on Pharaoh for his stubborn re refusal to let Israel go. And after a, a few plagues, Pharaoh says, I repent. And yet as soon as the plague stops, he repents of his repentance. He changed his mind again. His sorrow was not actually sorrow about his rebellion against God. His sorrow was merely sorrow for the discomfort 
that those plagues has caused. And as soon as the discomfort was gone, his grief evaporated. It was just self-centered sorrow. Very different kind of sorrow from the one we saw a few weeks back when uh, we looked at Psalm 51 together. The example of David when he had sinned. He'd blown it big time. Committed adultery, committed murder, massive abuse of power. And you remember, eventually confronted by the prophet, God's prophet Nathan, David felt dreadful, but not in a self-centered way. He wasn't just thinking, oh no, how embarrassing to be, be found out. What a, what a hypocrite people will think me, this great godly king, actually is. Not just, oh, I've let myself down. I've blown it. Now his grief was God-centered. He said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But we say that's godly sorrow. And that's what he saw in these Corinthians. Not just self-pity, not embarrassment that they'd been ticked off by Paul, upset that Paul was disappointed about them. And Paul speaks of their alarm at the seriousness of their sin in God's eyes. It was sorrow towards God, he says, God-centered. All of us at times feel bad and lousy, and we know we've messed up. We feel a deep sense of failure. But is it self-centered or God-centered? Is it worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? Paul was delighted to see godly sorrow in them. But the other mark of, of, of godly sorrow is that godly sorrow leads to repentance, not mere remorse. If I'm in the car and uh, come to a, a T-junction, I take the wrong turn. Turn left rather than right. And a few miles down the road, I realize my mistake. I'm likely to say, what a complete idiot. How can I be so stupid not to be paying attention? I feel terrible. I might turn to all the passengers in the car and say, look, I'm so sorry I stuffed up. I'm so sorry. I wasn't concentrated. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I can apologize to them. But really, that doesn't do anything unless I stop the car and turn around and drive back the way I should be going. Remorse is not enough. And worldly sorrow stops at remorse. Godly sorrow, Paul says, leads to change, leads to Repentance. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. It goes on. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. The word might mean haste. Worldly sorrow sort of faffs around and just feels sorry for itself. Godly sorrow wants to act, put things right, get this sorted. He says, what, what eagerness to clear your name, not in the sense of justifying yourselves and, and shifting the blame, but, but putting things right. What indignation, what alarm, he says, at their sin. They, they felt the seriousness of their sin. What longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Back in chapter 2, Paul had spoken about how encouraged he was that they had taken steps to discipline the offender. 
which up to that point they'd not really bothered about, hadn't worried about. Paul says godly sorrow leads to repentance. It put things right, like Zacchaeus, whose repentance was seen in giving back what he had stolen. Not just feeling sorry and remorseful, but repentance. The other thing Paul says about godly sorrow is that godly sorrow is a reason for confidence and not despair. Worldly sorrow brings death. It's essentially negative, destructive. It brings no healing. It offers no hope. We turn in on ourselves, and of course we can't forgive ourselves the wrong that we have done. But in godly sorrow, we turn to God, and we can find forgiveness there. There's, there's healing. There's hope. Godly sorrow, he says, leads to salvation. So seeing this godly sorrow in the, in the Corinthians, Paul says... Verse 16, I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. This godly sorrow is a sure sign God is at work in you. There's, there's plenty more that still needs to be sorted out in this church in Corinth. Paul is going to have a lot more pretty harsh things to say to them about things that still need sorting out. And yet, seeing this godly sorrow, this repentance they've already shown in this one matter gives him confidence that God is at work. God has his hand on them. And I suppose it's, as Paul says it, he wants them to have confidence too. In all of us, there are masses of things that still need to be sorted out. Lots of sin we haven't begun to even recognize in our own hearts. And of course, lots of sin we have recognized and we continue to struggle with. But Paul would say signs of repentance in, in maybe just one area of life is a sign of God being at work in us. He's not yet finished. There's lots still to do. But he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. So godly sorrow doesn't lead to despair. I'm rubbish and hopeless. Godly sorrow, Paul says, is a reason for confidence. Confidence in ourselves. Confidence we can have of others. Some of us, many of us in different ways, will have a pastoral concern or responsibility for others. Parents, you have a pastoral responsibility for your kids. And sometimes you will look at your kids and you will feel there is so much that still needs sorting out in their lives, in their characters, and one might be prone to despair. But learn from Paul that we can take encouragement. Seeing progress in one area should encourage us. God is at work in our kids, in others we're concerned for. Reason for confidence, not despair. So godly sorrow, God-centered, not me-centered, leads to repentance, not mere remorse. Reason for confidence and not despair. That's what delighted Paul, seeing that in the Corinthians. And I guess the question we need to ask, if Paul were to look at us, if the Lord Jesus were to look at us, would he see signs of godly sorrow? Deep sorrow for our sin. Not just remorse, not just self-pity, self-loathing, but godly sorrow like this. what we'd look for in a church. Often when we 
wondering which church we might go to. We're looking for joy. That would be a good thing to look for. Joy is a good thing to look for in a church. Paul might say, yeah, look for sorrow too. That's a sign of health in a church. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. May godly sorrow mark us. That's the first thing Paul's delighted by. The second thing is heartfelt devotion. That too is a concern that runs throughout this chapter. Paul's delighted to see, and actually he's longing to see more of their devotion to him. That's his uh, repeated appeal. Look across the page, the chapter 6, verse 11, where he said this, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Again, he begins our passage. Verse 2 of chapter 7. Make room for us in your hearts. He's longing to see more of devotion for him in them. But in verse 7, he says one reason for this joy that is greater than ever is that Titus has brought me news of your ardent concern for me. That, that, that tough letter he'd written, he says, that rebuke, its purpose wasn't really simply to make sure the offender was duly punished. More than that, it was about restoring their love for him and concern for him. Look on to verse 12. He says, so even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Maybe it's a rather surprising thing for Paul to say. That Paul, more important than that the individual who'd spoken against Paul should be disciplined, much more concern was that the Corinthians should recognize their devotion to him. And it's not simply because he's their pastor. No, it's because he's their apostle. He is Christ's apostle. And that's why it's a very important issue in this letter. Because Paul says if they distance themselves from him, they will be distancing themselves from Christ. Paul's not just fussed about his approval ratings, his reputation in Corinth. Paul is worried about the spiritual health of this church. And for Paul, a key mark of spiritual health is that they should have heartfelt devotion towards him. You say, well, how do we apply that to ourselves? What does that mean for us? I guess you might think of it in these terms. There should be a proper devotion, heartfelt devotion, for our apostolic roots. Which for us, I think, means especially for Scripture. And most of us, I guess, that are here today, would probably quite quickly say, yeah, I accept the authority of Scripture. As I suppose most of the Corinthians might well have said, they're loyal to Paul. But actually, as Paul exposes in this letter, 
They might say they're loyal to Paul, but their actions slightly denied that. And he sees that their hearts actually were being drawn to new teachers, false teachers, who had the kind of ministry that was much more in step with the world. In a similar kind of way, we might say, yeah, yeah, of course I'm committed to the Bible. But if we're honest and look within, our actions sometimes deny that. And our hearts, too, are always being drawn to the world. We profess loyalty to Scripture. But Paul actually is looking not just for loyalty, he's looking for devotion. Open wide your hearts to me, he says. Heartfelt devotion is what should mark us. I think that's maybe a challenge. That's, as we look at this passage, look at ourselves in the mirror. That's the question to ask ourselves. Is, as the psalmist said, our delight in God's word? Or do we read it dutifully as opposed to hungrily? Do we read it with fear and trembling? That's how the Corinthians responded to Paul's words. That's how we should respond to God's word, fear and trembling. Paul wanted them, he says, to see for themselves how devoted they were to him. I take it, he thought they were devoted to him. The devotion was there. But as it were, he'd been, it had been buried in their hearts under a whole load of other things. They were beginning to be drawn in other directions. Other loves were taking hold. And I guess that's true for us. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus, if we have the Spirit of God in our hearts, then I think for every one of us, there is a delight in God's Word in our hearts. But so easily it gets sort of drowned out by other things. We lose our sense of delight in Scripture, our appetite for Scripture. It's drowned out by other things. We're distracted by other things. But for Paul, a crucial sign of spiritual health is that heartfelt devotion. Not simply to him, I think we do understand, but for God's word. And he wants us to see it in our hearts, to recognize it, and then nurture it, that love for God's word. So those are the two things that brought Paul great joy as he saw them in the, in the Corinthian church. Godly sorrow and heartfelt devotion. And I take it that's what he'd love to see in us. That's what the Lord Jesus would love to see in us. We know that Jesus, strangely but wonderfully, delights in St. Ebbs, delights in each one of us, his family. He, he does delight in us. But if we were to ask, what are the things that would particularly thrill him as he looked at us? They're perhaps not the things we too quickly focus on. It's not numbers. It's not the excellence with which things are done. It's not the vibe in the, in the meeting. I think other things are what Jesus is more particularly concerned about. And not least, this chapter tells us, he's thrilled when he sees godly sorrow for sin and heartfelt devotion 
for his word. And may those things mark us more and more. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, please may those things mark us more and more. We confess that often it's worldly sorrow simply that marks us. Often there's just a dutiful commitment to your word, ill-disciplined, easily distracted. We pray you'd help us to grow in these things. May your spirit do his work in us and, and cause us more and more to hate sin and love you, love your word. We ask it for your namesake.